Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or call and leave a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. And if you're feeling particularly generous and want to com- uh, and want to support Anthology with your wallet, there's a donate button on AnthologyPod.com as well as a link to the donate page in the show notes of this episode. Every donation made using that donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running and is incredibly um, appreciated. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing A Stop at Willoughby. It's the 30th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on May 6th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on Patterns, a 1955 craft television theater episode written by Rod Serling that gave uh, Serling his kind of big break into the world of uh, television writing and film writing as well. But first, I have a couple things I want to address um, before I get into my review of A Stop at Willoughby. Um, first is that there's a new uh, DVD and Blu-ray set of The Twilight Zone that's that's uh, available and actually coming out. So the DVD set, I believe, is already available. It's a complete series. It, I don't know anything about whether or not there's new, uh, new, uh, new bonus features or anything new to it. It may just be a uh, repackaging from the, from the distributor, uh, because I know that the, uh, previous Blu-ray complete set, um, went out of print. So the DVD set is currently available on, um, Amazon for about 50 bucks, which isn't, isn't bad. I don't, again, I don't know if they're, if it has special features or not, but the, uh, Blu-ray set is actually scheduled to come out on December 13th. And the pre-order price right now on Amazon is like 85 bucks. And I don't know. I (laughs) like, I was really excited to get the, um, the definitive collection or the, uh, the, uh, fifth dimension, uh, DVD collection. And I, I like it a lot. It's, it's, I mean, it's been great to have it and everything. Um, but man, 85 bucks for the complete series on Blu-ray. Um, if it has, I don't know, even if it has just the same bonus features as the set that I have, I might actually upgrade to it, um, to Blu-ray because I've noticed that when I watch the DVDs, the, the image quality isn't 
as pristine as even the Netflix streaming of it is. And it's not anything that's too, that's too bad or it doesn't detract from the experience or anything. Cause there are a ton of special features in it, but I mean, I don't know, 85 bucks to have the twilight zone on Blu-ray is pretty, uh, is not a bad, uh, not a bad deal at all. I'll make sure I put a link to the uh, Amazon listing in the show notes of this episode for anyone that wants to check that out. And uh, next up, I have a couple listener emails that I want to get uh, get to, um, mostly feedback on my last episode of uh, Anthology, episode 24, covering Nightmare as a Child, and particularly regarding uh, Terry Burnham, who played uh, Marky in the episode. So the first email comes in from Greg, who's emailed before. He says, Terry Burnham was terrific in this episode. I especially like when Helen asks Marky, understand what? And you can see Marky in the background mouthing Helen's words. I don't know if it was a flub or intentional, but it gives me the creeps in either case. As far as promising child thespians who go nowhere, uh, Terry Burnham's got nothing on Carrie Hen. Whereas Terry has credits before and after the Twilight Zone, Carrie has, o- has one credit and one credit only aliens for my money out, out of all scary things and aliens the face huggers the queen alien uh, sigourney weaver's mid-80s soccer mom fro <laughs> the weaver herself is awesome nothing beats the iconic line they mostly come at night mostly in my younger days i.e my 20s if i was able if i was about to call it a day and while on my way to bed i got hen's slumber party in a cemetery reading of that line stuck in my head there was the highest probability that i would be tossing and turning all night Plus, she and Burnham have a knack for the thousand-yard stare that older artists with all their mumbo, all their method mumbo jumbo, would struggle to match. I imagine a stop at Willoughby will bring this hot streak of mediocrity you're in to an end. It is pretty great. And that email comes in from Greg once again. And yeah, you know, I didn't notice the the kind of creepy background mouthing that uh terry burnham does and i have to believe that that's just a flub that that's just a uh a child actor um just uh a flub on on the actor's part um it kind of reminds me of uh, a slight tangent here it kind of reminds me of um oh wow uh keenan thompson on saturday night live um if you go back and and watch some of some of his uh, sketches that he's in from like his first, maybe four or five years on the show. Like he is mouthing the words of everyone that's talking that he's not talking. It is, it is incredibly distracting, but in the context of, of this and Terry Burnham and nightmare as a child, it, it does kind of lend an extra creepiness to it because she is this weird supernatural entity in the episode. That's kind of all knowing and knows everything about Helen and, that is that is a nice touch. That's a that's a good uh, that's a good uh, that's a good observation. Thanks for sharing, Greg. And not to spoil my um, review coming going forward, but yeah, stop it, Willoughby. Definitely uh, definitely did change up the my feelings uh, of of the Twilight Zone, the later part of season one of the Twilight Zone. But more on that later. I have one other email to go through. It's, it comes from Roger, and he says, "Hi, Matt." Just listen to your podcast on Nightmare as a Child. I'm a first-time listener. In any event, I was wondering if you were aware of the rest of the story about Andrew Ramage, 
the Twilight Zone Museum, and his successful effort to raise funds for a marker for Terry in the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Long Beach. I donated $50 toward this memorial, which was placed fairly recently. Uh, and he includes a link to the uh, to Terry's page on the Facebook page for the uh, Twilight Zone Museum. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And he said, all the best to you with your podcast. I listen to many of the Zone podcasts and am pleased to see how many of them continue to be produced. Roger. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for writing in, Roger. And uh, it's funny. (laughs) I got this email like probably about an hour before I started recording this episode. So he got it right under the wire. And... To go into the content of his of his email here, yeah, there there was this great fundraising or, or uh, um, I don't think it was a Kickstarter. I think it was um, not Indiegogo. It was, it was a crowdsourced a, a fundraiser for uh, for Terry Burnham to get a to get um, a marker for her, a headstone, and it was successful. I think they came just just. I think $300 shy of their, um, of their goal, but it was enough to get her a, a headstone and a nice memorial service. And it's, that's really remarkable. That's, that's actually, I mean, it's, it's really incredible. And this is the kind of thing that makes me so excited to get into the twilight zone and to kind of develop this, uh, like me developing this new appreciation or this appreciation for the show that I never got a chance to really consume growing up, like me discovering the show now and, and going through it, like things like this just makes it so worth it and so exciting for me because this is like, this is above and beyond. Like, this is incredible from a, a fan base perspective. Like, you have this actress who appeared in one episode of, of, of the fan base's beloved show, um, who was seclu- uh, seclusive, uh, reclusive and, and like the, the fan base, the fan base just kind of, you know, got together and, and did this. And it's really remarkable. And I have the utmost respect for, uh, for uh, Andrew Ramage and uh, everyone that donated to this to this amazing cause, it's really incredible, and uh, I'll put a link to everything in the show notes as well. And thanks again, Roger, for writing in and, and sharing that with me. And I hope you continue listening to the podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, so that is all I have for emails this week, and I'm going to go ahead and get us kicked off with a. Summary of A Stop at Willoughby, courtesy of the Twilight Zone Companion. Of course, the summary and review going forward are going to be uh, completely spoiler-heavy, so if you haven't watched the episode yet, please go on to Netflix or Amazon or uh, your DVD or wherever uh, and watch the episode and then come back and listen to it if you don't want to be spoiled. Okay, so the plot description reads as follows. During a meeting, Mr. Misrell... Williams' boss, savagely dresses him down for losing an important automobile account. Riding home on the train, Williams has a dream in which he is on a very different train in July of 1880, entering a restful little town named Willoughby, a place, as the conductor tells him, where a man can slow down to a walk and live his life full measure. He realizes that he isn't made for, for the competitive life that Willoughby is where he belongs. But when he tries to explain this to his wife, an an acquisitive woman who sorely regrets her choice of husband, he receives only ridicule. Ultimately, the pressure of his job causes Williams to crack. 
When he calls his wife to tell her that he's quitting and to beg her to wait for, to wait at home for him, she hangs up. On the on the commuter train, Williams feels devastated. His life in shambles. Miraculously, he suddenly finds himself back in Willoughby, where the town's folk greet him warmly by name. He's home to stay. Meanwhile, the commuter train has come to a full stop. It seems that Mr. Williams, a regular passenger, shouted something about Willoughby, then jumped off the train to his death. The body is loaded in into a hearse. The sign on the back, Willoughby and Son Funeral Home. All right, before I get to my review of this episode, I'm going to do a, run, a talent rundown of the cast and crew. Starring in this episode is James Daly as Gart Williams. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, however, he does have a connection to Serling in that he appeared in Planet of the Apes. And this is kind of a little anecdotal, anecdotal trivia thing. But he's the father of uh, actress Tyne Daly and actor Tim Daly, who um, I particularly know very well from, uh, from Wings, the uh, 90s sitcom that was on CBS. Um, I believe, yeah, it was CBS. It's also sort of tied to um, the Twilight Zone, I guess. Um, let's see. Uh, co-starring as Mr. Miserell is Howard Smith. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. The next we'll see him is in season three, episode 26. Cavender, uh, Cavender is coming. And as Jane Williams is Patricia Donahue. This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, she w did appear in one episode of Science Fiction Theater in 1956 titled The Phantom Car. And she appeared in a couple episodes of Night Gallery. And let's see. She adopted a uh, a child from Vietnam in 1975. That's, that's the piece of trivia I have on her. Um, and let's see. Appearing as the train conductor is as one of the train conductors, Jason Wingreen. This is his first of three Twilight Zones. Next is the Midnight Sun season in season three. He also appeared in three Outer Limits, two Night Galleries, and he provided the voice of Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back. And he also appeared in Airplane. Um, let's see, he passed away in 2015, but one of his final um, acting credits was in an episode of Seinfeld, which... I don't know if I've mentioned this show before, but if you uh, if you're a fan of Seinfeld, I I highly recommend checking out Seinfeld. It's a it's a fun um, episode by episode review of Seinfeld by uh, a couple guys who are have really good chemistry on on the uh, microphone, and one of them is a huge huge Twilight Zone fan. So anytime there's any kind of crossover on uh, in terms of acting in Seinfeld in Twilight Zone, they always kind of reference it. So it's pretty fun. And writer for this episode was Rod Serling. And this, he stated that this was his, uh, this was his favorite first season episode of the show. And, uh, I find that pretty interesting. It seems like a very personal story for him. And rounding out the talent rundown is director Robert Parrish. This is his second of three episodes. And last we'll see of him is, uh, here in a few weeks for the mighty Casey. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and get into my feelings as a viewer. Um, first of all, before I, before I watch this episode, um, before I go into, to that, I, I like to talk about what I knew about the episode before watching it for the first time. So this, for this one, I didn't know much. I just knew the title and I knew that it was about a businessman who imagines a magical world for himself, uh, or a pretend 
pretend world. And I knew that it had something to do with a train. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't really surprised, um, except for the ending. I was surprised by the ending, but I, this episode delivered exactly what I thought it was going to deliver and I'm excited to talk about it. So I'll start off my review by talking about the kind of technical aspects of it. The, from the outset, the very first scene, the opening shot is of a uh, boardroom or a conference room that uh, Gart is in with his coworkers and Mr. Misrell. And from, from that moment, like that moment, I really loved the framing of it. Um, the camera is center in the, uh, is perfectly, uh, perfectly center on the table. And we see just straight, like straight in front of us and in dead center is Mr. Misrell with a, with a backdrop of, um, New York city, um, in the background. And it's just, it's a really, it's really great imagery. It really brings you into exactly what setting this is and exactly what environment it is. And it really brings us into the tense scolding that Gart undergoes. It it brings us into that scenario really well. And then later when, um, when Gart is on the train, I, I really like the snowfall effect. I mean, it's simple. It's, it's really simple. Uh, and straightforward, but it is, it, it, it's done well. <laughs> like, I mean, there are a lot of snowflakes, I guess would be my, um, my compliment for it, my compliment for it. But I also like the implementation of, of snow into the setting because it's a really easy way to distinguish Willoughby and, in in the, the train. It's, it's just such an easy distinction, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I liked it. I thought it was, it was a good, good way to set the tone or set the setting. And later in the episode when Gart kind of finally comes unglued and he, uh, shatters the camera or not camera, but the mirror in the bathroom, I, re- I really like that effect. There's such a such a habit of characters breaking windows or breaking window or uh, breaking mirrors or breaking just glass in, in general in the show. And this comes in, uh, comes into play in a really uh, effective way because you can tell that that's kind of one of uh, the characters, like uh, one of the characters breaking points. And it in particular reminded me of the mirror effect in mirror image and how, um, the main character there used the mirror in the bathroom to kind of peek on the, uh, her doppelganger. And it really reminded me of the mirror shattering effect. And where is everybody where, um, I can't, uh, where Earl Holloman runs into the mirror when he's, um, kind of losing it. Um, kind of, it really, those both where is everybody and a stop at Willoughby. Those, those sequences share a lot in common there. And finally, for the technical side of the review, there's a, there's a decision made. Uh, I believe it's right before the final, um, sequence where, where Gart is on the train, but we see that like at that point, his life is really, really in shambles and everything is like, he's reached his breaking point and, the scene cuts from his office to the train scene, but it's not him sitting in the seat like normal, like it was earlier in the episode where we cut to him 
um, just on the train, but we see him from uh, the reflection in the glass. And like that is the establishing shot of him on the train. And I thought that was such a great way to represent that. Um, sure, the scene changed to him on the train now, but also just just to kind of show that he is not in his world anymore, that he is that while he is physically in that world and mentally in his normal world, he is on an opposite side. He is in another world. He is he does not belong there. It felt really apt to show his reflection immediately when cutting uh, that scene, cutting to that scene, because he is just he's not he's not there anymore. He's not with himself anymore. He's not even in Willoughby yet. He's just he's just not himself, and the end his body is going to join him, um, sadly. So to go back to the conference call scene and way back at the beginning, um, the scene with Mr. Misrell and in the, the board members or whatever, whatever the ad agency setup is that ad the ad men, um, I really like the way that the character of Misrell is, just as unappealing and intimidating a figure as he possibly could be. And that <laughs> as he's, as he's just spouting this, uh, uh, punishment or verbal punishment and scolding on to guard. Um, he's just, he's like, <laughs> he says push like probably a dozen times and he, he ends it on just the camera ends it on this, ch- on uh, him chanting, uh, it's push, push, push down the line, all that. Um, but the camera has a close up to his mouth as he's shouting at, at him. And that, like, that just lands in such a disgusting and grimy way. Um, it shows his lack of empathy and he, it makes him so easy to hate right off the bat because he is just relentless. And it just, it just also shows that, um, it hints at that, that Gart, Williams is just just does not belong in that world and like even when he finds out that um the executive that was supposed to have the big automobile account is resigning like you see not actually before that when he gets when he uh calls the secretary to see what's what the holdup is like he's favoring his stomach he does that throughout the whole episode that he just kind of winces and 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 rubs his rubs his stomach and just showing that he is stressed and he has probably an ulcer um, because of the job and just kind of really um, demonstrating visually that he does not belong in this world and that he does not belong in this, in this setting. This is not his life that he, that he would have had, that he would have chose for, chose for himself. And so after he is, after he, <laughs> after he loses it in such a likable way too, he, he loses it and he, um, yells at Mizrael, but even the way that he talks back to him, it's not that it's not this big, like angry, like outburst at him that he's been building up forever. It's just, he calls him, he calls him fat and then, and tells him to shut up essentially. And it's, it really speaks to the Gart, to the Gart Williams character because he, I mean, he's friendly. He's, he's creative. He's kind of a, he's kind of a sad sack and, but he's a gentle, peaceful person, it seems, or he's, he's a nice, he's a nice person. He has a nice, uh, he has a nice way about him and it shows that he's not ruthless. He just, 
he just says it and storms out. Um, he's the antithesis of, of Mizrell and the standard ad executive. And when he leaves the, when he leaves the boardroom and he goes back to his office, he tells his secretary that, um, when she when she asks if he need any, needs anything, he says a sharp razor and a chart of the human anatomy showing where the arteries are. And on first viewing, um, that line is so was 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 pretty funny to me. I thought, oh well, you know, that's kind of a clever quip, um, and kind of a clever comeback, or not comeback, but just a clever quip for him to say in the moment. It's kind of a flashy bit of dialogue, uh, I guess, but. Um, and upon repeat viewings of this episode, um, that line takes such a dark tone and it shows that he is, he is at least actively considering suicide and that's, that's really dark and that's, that's kind of, uh, tragic. And so after that, we get him at his desk and that's when Serling pipes in with his opening narration. And, you know, usually, usually in the past, I have taken to kind of nitpicking Serling's words a little bit, which is blasphemous and, uh, terrible of me, I know, but I've like, I've, I've had like little bits and pieces here where I'm like, okay, well, okay. Okay. Serling says that he, this character is in a nightmare, but is it really a nightmare? Is it, is it really, is he really representing what the, what the episode is going to be about for me? Um, am I really latching on to, to the right things with his narration there? But, um, but I admit that, I mean, that's, that's nitpicking at best. And, um, even though, um, even, even though I do kind of nitpick it and everything, that's not to say that the, that the opening narrations aren't written just freaking beautifully. Like the, this, this man Serling had such a poetry to his writing that it was, it's just intoxicating to hear him just sum up what we're about to see or the character that is about to be in the twilight zone so eloquently. It's, it's just, it's so, it's so beautiful. And I can't, I don't know how someone can possess that type of uh, talent to do that. So, so much throughout every episode of this series. Um, that, that he wrote much less writing the the whole scripts, um, that he did. It's just, it's astounding. But having said that, even though I have nitpicked the narrations in the past, this one is right on the money. It's, uh, it's filled with like beautiful metaphors. Like when he says that Gart is a man protected by a suit of armor held together by a single bolt, but someone just removed the bolt and left him naked uh, a naked target. And that's just, ah, that's just, that's just so beautiful. That's so eloquent. And we see, um, James Daly just sitting there, just doing his thing at his desk while Serling narrates. And you can see the, the pain of, of his life kind of starting to, starting to surface a little bit, just as he's just sitting at his desk, kind of taking in what just happened. And the way that Serling says that uh, Gart is about to move into the Twilight Zone in a desperate search for survival, that's uh, particularly haunting in its beauty and elegance. Um, just really just really well done, and, and it gives a really strong sense of foreboding to the episode. 
So once Gart is on the train, we get we we get our first look at Willoughby, and it's just it's just a quick glimpse at it. And I was actually really surprised because I I had no idea going in what exactly this episode had to offer me. But um, I thought it was interesting that we didn't get um, uh, him in Willoughby, which obviously there were reasons for that to uh, for him not to you know stay in Willoughby that long, but. I was really in, inter- I found it really interesting when I first started when I first watched this episode that he doesn't stay there. I just kind of assumed that it would be let's see I kind of I kind of thought that it would go the route of him wandering into this weird other world and then spending time there and realizing that it wasn't quite the idyllic dreamland that he envisioned and that there would be something wrong and then um maybe there would be a, you know, signature Twilight Zone twist. But I thought it was m- handled much better that they, that, that he gradually builds up the nerve to, to, uh, to leave the train and go to Willoughby, which I'll talk more about that in a moment. But I just liked that it was introduced as a dream. So we kind of get a hint of what Willoughby has, has to offer and why it would be so tantalizing to someone who is, so filled with stress as Gart is and filled with stress and unhappiness, I should say. So then we see him at home and we see him kind of relaxing with the drink after a long day and we're introduced to his wife. And at that moment I kind of realized like, yeah, I wonder how this episode, I wondered how this episode would um, compare to world of difference or walking distance. So obviously the, strong comparison is for really either one um walking distance i mean they're kind of very similar episodes there's uh in walking distance it's about an ad executive who's fed up with his life as an ad executive who wanders into a uh to a different world um than the one that he lives in and that happens to be that happens to take the form of him in his childhood uh hometown as a as a child or not as a child but traveling back in time to when he was a child and intervene in interfering with his growing and here we have an ad executive who's tired of being an ad executive who uh eventually wanders into what looks like an idyllic dream world in a world of difference we have an actor who is confused about who he is and how he has this I mean, it's open to interpretation, but he's manifested this reality of him being the character that he's portraying. Um, you could argue as an ex- and as as a uh, as an escape from his normal life with his uh, <laughs> ruthless wife, which that brings me to a discussion about or my thoughts on Gart's wife. Um, <sighs> The way that Serling writes, writes, the way that Serling writes wives in the show, and uh, the way that the show handles wives so far, is uh, kind of, kind of similar across the board so far. Uh, we have these kind of harpy um, characters who are sucking the life force from their husbands, and that's not to say that there haven't been, you know strong women characters. There's Nightmare as a Child and um, 16 Millimeter Shrine. But whenever there's a husband and wife, there seems to be this 
kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> like, why aren't you like in line husband kind of demeanor or I want all of your money and I made you and, and stuff like that. So in this case, we have Gart's wife who is not quite as difficult as the other uh, wives throughout the, throughout the first season that I've seen. Um, there's almost not a compassion there. It's, it's funny. Like she, like she tells him that she's sick and tired of a husband who's in a permanent state of self, self pity. And at that moment, that's, that's almost a mark against Gart. Um, almost if, if you look at it through Gart's wife's point of view, um, when you consider the fact that like she has a husband who's mopey and, and is just full of self pity all the time, he's unsatisfied with his life. And, you know, you can see how that would kind of take a toll on a marriage and on, on, um, her patience, but, um, that's the benefit of the doubt. Um, when you lift that benefit of the doubt from it, I mean, she's kind of miserable. She is a, uh, a force of misery for Gart. I mean, granted she has to live with him being self filled with self pity and mopey and everything, but that's because there's nothing in his life that's right. And, uh, she has, she demonstrates a complete lack of empathy and a lack of interest in helping him get better. And she is a, a classic, like, um, character that's accustomed to a lifestyle. And if he's not an ad executive and if, if he's not, if he's not doing that, she's going to lose that. And that's not something that interests her, even though it's literally killing her husband. So it's, there's kind of an interesting just, um, dynamic at play here. And, um, she comes, she comes out of it looking just despicable and, um, increasing the tragedy factor for Gart at the end. Um, but even though she is this kind of cruel and, um, someone somewhat despicable person, I, I like the, I like the fact that Gart feels that he can tell her about Willoughby. Um, like there's like, maybe I'm reading into it a little bit, but I like the fact that he can be mopey and, and, uh, filled with self pity and be just a sad sack over it and over his life. And yet in, in while, even though she is so, um, <laughs> she's so cruel to him as to not want to let him do what he, what he, let him seek a more fulfilling life. Um, because she would lose everything, um, that she forced him to work for. Um, I still like the fact that he can sit there and tell her that he, he imagined a place where he could live his, live his life full measure and, and be happy. And it, you kind of get the sense that he's appealing to her for comfort because she's his wife and like she, she tears him down after that. And that's so that, that made me really sad that their, their relationship, like he, their husband and wife, and he can't confide in her or trust her or, um, look to her for, 
you know, help when he needs it. Like this, this whole episode is about his depression and you would argue mental illness and leading toward uh, committing suicide. And it's just, it's so, it's so dark and, and sad really. Um, and I really like that they included or put such an, a spotlight on the relationship that he has with his wife. And it kind of, it really brought about to, it, it really brought about a way to really give depth to the character and what he's going through because you could have just the stress of um, being an ad executive without needing or without wanting to be in that world. And you can, you can have that and then have that be enough to show his life in tatters and, and his life is not what he wants it. But having that added, added bonus of having his, his wife be this, um, very cruel person who he still feels he can, he can try to connect with, um, while she is also demanding this lifestyle and, and be, she's demanding that she, that she be still in this lifestyle. And so that means keeping him at arm's length in a job that he cannot function in or have any fulfillment from. And that just kind of all comes together to really show this really, to create this really tragic character in Gart Williams and that he can't, he can't escape anything. He doesn't have anything to live for. And that's a really sad, really sad um, thing to put a character through. And I also like his kind of outburst at her, his, his big moment where he explains to her that he's not the person that she wants him to be and that, um, or the person that she's tried to make, uh, tried to make him to be. And he says he's just a regular guy. And, and it's just, it's incredible because he references that it's, it's because she tried to make him that person. Cause she has this appetite. And she says like, she counters back with him with, where would you be if it weren't for my appetite? And it's that, that kind of just hit me in a way because Gart's life has become all about the things in his life that steal his individuality from him. He's lost who he is and he's done that by appeasing the people in his life. He is, he has let his wife control him and become a person that he had no interest in being or, or into becoming a person that he was not meant to be something that does not suit him. That does not suit the type of person he is. And now he's stuck in this life, this high pressured, stress filled life and career with a woman who doesn't care enough to really, to really let him be the person that he wants to be. And this is, I mean, this is really, there's, there's so much depth to this dynamic and the fact that he, would still be in this relationship. Granted, this is 1960 and, you know, divorce was not from my understanding. I mean, I'm freaking 30 years old, but, um, divorce at the time was more like, don't, don't speak of it that much. Or it wasn't anything that it wasn't as commonplace, I guess would be the, what I'm trying to say, or at least that's my uh, impression of it. But even still like they're not, functioning in in a happy marriage and the fact that he that he is in this life because 
of her quote unquote appetite and that uh, because she tried to make him into a person that he's not, that speaks to Gart's character in a, in a really positive way too, because he, that kind of lends a, lends a layer, lends a layer to his character in which it shows that he wants to make people happy. He is, he wants to make people happy if that means being miserable in a career so his wife can live an elegant lifestyle or if it's because he – or if it's so that he can – I don't know. I don't know. It, it just – it shows that he kind of puts people before his own well-being even though that eventually leads to his downfall. That's um, a strong character trait to to have even if it was – even if it is kind of foolish and tragic as it were. And just from – personal taste perspective, um, I guess, uh, his wife's monologue to him about how she shouldn't have married him. Um, first of all, that is just harsh. That's really harsh. And, uh, when she says that you were just born too late and she talks about how, um, he wants to be Huckleberry Finn and all that stuff. Um, I don't like her acting in that scene. (laughs) Um, that's just a personal, personal preference of mine. Like the writing is incredible. It really gets the point across and everything, but there's something she does with her head that it seems like she's just trying a little too hard to be really angry with him or, or to really exude anger at him. It's, it's, I don't know. It feels like it should be more disappointment or annoyance than outright anger. Uh, that that was my read at all. I don't know. So anyway, so we have Gart kind of sitting alone after that, repeating what the conductor said to him, saying that uh, uh, Willoughby is a place, a time where a man can live his life full measure. And ah, you just really, really feel for this character. It is so sad to me that he his life has come to this. And this whole episode, like I said, is, is about this whole episode is kind of about Gary's, uh, not Gary, Gart's um, mind kind of giving him the the incentive or, or the the stones to commit suicide. And it's, I've mentioned this before, but this, this episode in the show uh, deals really interestingly with uh, mental illness and, and uh certain like like uh, mental illness really um even i don't know if that's something that was it was conceived for or or what but um it's just it's a really interesting look at what a depressed and really um troubled mind will do if you view this episode as as a man under pressure suffering from kind of a de- de- highly depressive state or a depressive thing where his mind is you can kind of you can kind of interpret it as the um the dreams of Willoughby guiding him toward jumping off the train is kind of his mind visual representations of his mind trying to trick him or, or convince him that suicide is literally the only option that he has for happiness. And if you see it as the audience, just seeing that visually represented with this look at will, uh, Willoughby, uh, interspersed throughout the episode, 
but from his own personal perspective, he is just he's coming to the realization that committing suicide is is the right thing to do. This is just a really remarkable episode in that because this episode is about mental illness and and a man coming to terms with his life not being how he turned out and choosing to end his life. Um, it's a dark episode. It's really dark and sad and. Um, I would I would argue special too. This is a special episode in that it's it's dealing with some really really uh deep themes. Um and yeah, it's just it's really it, it really spoke to me. I I really enjoyed that aspect of it. It gave me a lot to uh consider. So as I was watching this show this episode for the first time, I kept uh like in my notes I have, I find myself really excited to see what's going to happen after he gets off at Willoughby. Will the episode end with his retreat to Willoughby, or will there be some tr- some twist to it? Which is interesting, because I really, I really was rooting for him to, to go to Willoughby. I wanted him to escape his life and be in this, in this new world. And I wonder if having a world of difference being aired earlier in the season... I wonder if you could, I, I don't know, this might be a stretch, but I wonder if that was kind of a purpose, purposeful um, placing uh, placement because it can kind of, it kind of greases the wheels or it kind of gets, gets the audience to thinking like, okay, well, I mean, that actor in A World of Difference, like he could escape his life and maybe Gart Williams can escape his too. And we kind of get that, like this episode is almost, is almost exactly like a world of difference. Only the difference is that, uh, Gart kills himself and that can kind of like, if you watch these episodes back to back without, um, uh, without any, without knowing anything about them, not that, I mean, a world of difference was a while ago, but, um, if you watch them, you might think that, okay, well, Gart's going to escape too, but not so much. I, and I really like the way that each stop, or each sequence of, of Gart on the train um, brings brings him closer to actually leaving the train. Um, the first time, he's just confused. He, de- he doesn't understand what's going on. He wakes up in this dream world, and it's just bizarre and, and weird. And the second time, he tries to leave, but he's delayed because he goes back for his briefcase, which speaks volumes about about his life. Like, he can't he can't leave his, his real life behind. Um, and that means he's not ready to make the, um, no pun intended leap to, um, um, to Willoughby. And then the final time is that, uh, you know, he's, he's ready to go. He, he leaves his briefcase and, um, he's ready to go. And I think it's pretty telling that, it takes him, you know, leaving the briefcase and, and saying goodbye to the ad, uh, to the ad world that, um, that's when he can finally get off the, get off the, uh, train and, and see Willoughby. Um, it's just unfortunate that that means killing himself. So after the, after the, uh, after the second stop at Willoughby, we get another scene of, Gart in his office. Um, and we have Mr. Misrael telling him like screaming at him through the phone, telling him to do better than his best. And then like almost immediately he's getting another call about, about an ad 
for for a show, and then his secretary comes in and says that Mr. Miserable wants to see him immediately, um, which is crazy because he just got off the phone with him, and then <laughs> like that secretary man, she is just the most aggravating character in this episode. She will not shut up about um about Mizrael wanting Gart. And I mean you can like you can rationalize it and like it, it like you can there's a clear it it tracks well within the episode that um like Mr. Mizrael is the most important person in this ad agency. So when you hear him or when he is summoning you, you need to drop everything and do it. And, uh, the secretary knows that. And, and the fact that Gart isn't doing it, isn't listening cause he's having a, a little bit of a meltdown. Um, <laughs> like that's, that's all well and dandy and everything. But, um, but man, if I had to hear that, that secretary say, Mr. Misrell, um, uh, Mr. Williams, Mr. Misrell, like, it's not even a complete sentence. She's just repeating the name and it's just, I don't know. I'm like, like in my notes, I have that secretary shut up. He heard you. It's just, I don't know. Um, so I talked a lot about the juxtaposition of, uh, Gart's life at home and his, uh, his life at the job and how those are both just not satisfying to him and they're bleeding his life force. They're making him hate his existence and I really like the escalation of those of those sides of his life. Like he has, like we don't get a lot of his home life or anything, but we do have a couple scenes where he's uh, talking to his wife or talking or trying to appeal to his wife. So we, so we get the scene that I talked about earlier when when he's discussing Willoughby with her, and then we get a scene where he is telling her um, to stay at home and wait for him to come home, and she just won't she won't do it. She won't even give him the lifeline of comfort in that situation. And then on the job side of things, everything escalates so much. Like he loses a big account or he loses not only a big account, but he loses a protege who he assigned the big account to. And then we just get harping on him all the time. Um, just if he's being pushed, pushed, pushed. And it's just, and it's something that he's already feeling sick about. And it's just, it's completely, completely out of his element, out of his trade. Like he, like he does not have the mental or he does not have the tools to succeed in, um, the ad world. And it just escalates so beautifully throughout the episode for me. I, I thought that that was really well, uh, really well done. And I referenced the call to his wife after he has his meltdown and everything, and I have to admit, the first time I saw that, uh, the first time I watched this episode, I was pretty confused about that call. Um, and it's supposed to, it, like, it signifies that she isn't a consoling presence. And for some reason, it didn't connect with me why he was telling her to stay. Um, because I think that my disconnect there is I didn't know, like, where would she go? Like I like there was nothing to sh- to tell me that um well there was nothing to tell me that she wouldn't be there when he got home. However, I guess that when he when he has his meltdown and he vows that he's done with it, done with the job and he quits, maybe he's just calling her because he knows that his coworker's wife is going to call her before he can get home and talk to her and everything. So there there is precedent for it. Um, 
but it was still kind of confusing um, because I didn't know at that time, I didn't know where the episode was heading. So I thought that maybe this was him like, okay, he's done with the ad with the ad, uh, with his career, with his ad life. And he's, I thought maybe when he said, stay there, um, I thought maybe he was telling her to, you know, stay away from him. I don't know where that connection came from. It was just a thought. But when I reflected on it, when I rewatched the episode a few times, it's that, that's, that moment, that scene is really heart wrenching because this is the moment where he is considering, like, deeply contemplating suicide. Um, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, that's, that's up to the viewer to, um, discern for themselves. But this is his appeal. Like he, this is his cry for help. He is like, he's done with his job. He is completely at his wits end and he calls the one person that he's sharing his life with and he's pleading with her to stay there so that like, like stay there so that he, so that he, for when, like be there when he gets home, like be there when you're, when he gets home and for him to reach out to her for help and reach out to her for her to console him and for her to just hang up on him is just brutal. It's so sad. And it's comes down to that. She married a lifestyle and not a man. And that's just a really sad and, and really uh pathetic thing. Um, and it really kind of solidifies his, uh, the tragedy of Gart Williams for me. And it's funny. So when he was on the, when he's on the train and he's about to, you know, step into Willoughby, um, here, here's my, here's what I wrote in my notes. Um, when he got off the train, I wrote, I'm really happy for Gart as he wanders through Willoughby. Is this a normal response? Should we be rooting for him or should we want him to be happy in his real life? And I think that that's something that I can, was conflicted with, um, <laughs> like in the moments before I realized that he had just killed himself. But it's an interesting thought experiment to think that like he, here's this other world that seems perfect for him. But are we, are we as the audience, like, are we supposed to root for him to like, like go there to, to, um, leave his life and find the solace and peace that he so desperately wants? Or, or do we want him, uh, to be happy in his real life? Do we want him to just find another career, um, find another wife, and uh, move on and, and live live a happy life without needing to be in Willoughby. Um, of course, all of that is just you know cast aside when when you realize that Willoughby um, may or may not be just a representation of the afterlife for Gart, as his mind is um, causing him to uh, to get it in his head that suicide is the um, right course for him. That was my interpretation, at least. If if I am way off base on this, or if I, or if people have other interpretations of it, let me know because I'm I'm kind of viewing this as his mind is making him uh, okay with the fact that he can that he should kill himself. And I thought that that was a really compelling read on the episode. If if you guys think of something else, then let me know. But that's the only that's the only. Um, interpretation that I can conjure up for this episode. 
And I have to say, when it's revealed that he that he jumped off the train and he died, man, that like that just uh, that threw me for a loop. That just really blew me away. Um, I have in my notes, um, wow, WTF? He's dead. Uh, that just shattered my world a little, and it really did because I was so on board with the the story of Gart Williams. I was really hoping that he would persevere and he would find a life that that suited him and that was a happy ending and that i i am fully admitting that i know that that is a completely absurd proposal for me to have in an episode of um the twilight zone because he's not (laughs) i mean the odds are stacked against him he's in an episode of the twilight zone I mean, he might not have a happy ending and, and I've kind of, and I've kind of talked about this throughout it, but I just want to say again, the fact that he dies really raises some interesting questions for me. And it makes me wonder, um, what the implications are of it, like on the rest of the episode, like once again, did did Gart consciously commit suicide? Was this was this something that he was planning toward or working toward or was this a decision that he came came to consciously or was it just the twilight zone affecting his judgment or or making him think um there was some oasis um the a, mir- a mirage of a perfect life that was leading him toward um escape but the twist of it being that the escape is him leaving the world and killing himself the the call to his wife would lead me to think that it was that it was conscious that um that he made the choice to to jump and and murder not murder but uh jump and commit suicide and it makes me wonder if that last that last vision that last um dream on the train makes me wonder if we as the audience are only shown that as it's like a manifestation of his mind. And if maybe, um, I'm, I'm reaching here, but maybe there is some, there, maybe there's something where like, like Gart is actually on the train and he's making the decision like, well, Willoughby is, uh, in another world, I'm going to just go and jump off the train and be in Willoughby. Like in his mind, like are we in his mind seeing that manifestation? Whereas he is not, it's not him being tricked into it. It's him thinking like, well, I'm, I'll be in Willoughby in one world or the other and then killing himself. I don't know if I'm making myself that clear or speaking that or articulating that quite well, but, um, I think, I think the point stands. I kind of wonder if this was a uh, conscious thing on Gart's part or if it was the Twilight Zone tricking him into killing himself. Um, I am a super pessimist, so I'm going to think that Gart uh, consciously committed suicide. And so this is kind of getting to the end of the episode, but um, there's one other thing I kind of want to mention about it. So the closing scene or the closing shot is of the hearse loading Gart into, uh, them loading Gart into the hearse. And then the door closes and we see that the name of the funeral home is Willoughby and son. And to be honest, I felt like that just wasn't really needed. I didn't, I didn't really get that. Um, 
it's, I mean, is it just a coincidence? Is it just a tongue in cheek thing on the uh, Twilight Zone's part? Like, oh, hey, the the name of the town is actually the name of the funeral home that's taking his dead body. Or is it meant to signify that, you know, I don't know what it could signify that, that, um, death has a twisted sense of humor, I guess, or that maybe, um, Gart knew about, knew about it subconsciously. And that's when his brain manifested, um, Willoughby as an idyllic town. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just thought that that, it didn't feel like it was earned really it it felt like it felt like just a button on the whole episode that didn't need to be on it it just felt like it wasn't earned i like it it's kind of a tongue in cheek thing and i don't know um it didn't really work for me um let's see i've kind of talked a lot about the performances throughout it throughout this review but i just want to mention that james daly um he has such a down to earth presence and um, there are some moments like, like there's a lot of like visual cues, um, sprinkled throughout it. Um, at least early on where like, like I said, he's favoring his stomach to signifying he has an ulcer. And like, even in the opening scene, like you can really tell that there are some subtle touches to show how stressed out he is with him, like tapping his knuckles with the pencil. And I mean, there, there are some little pieces here and there that I, I don't know. It just felt like they didn't really need to have that in there, but, um, it's a nice touch to the ambiance of the episode. So let's see, um, as far as cultural subtext and, uh, theme of this episode, this, this episode is kind of interesting in that I, I feel like it's, um, or at least I've read this here and there that it feels like Serling is kind of working through some stuff. Um, this character is in his late thirties. He's in a high, very high pressure job um, he can't really take the pressure. Um, I mean, Serling is the head of a TV show that has a lot of stress on him. He has a lot of, um, he's a highly sought after talent and that's a lot of stress on someone. So maybe he's working through some stuff in this, in this episode here. And I just, and I just, again, regarding theme and, and the bigger messages of it, I just, man, I connected with Gart Williams so much. I, I really loved that character. And it's such a, it's such a shame that he turned out to be such a tragic character. Um, because he, like he's trapped. He knows that he's not the type of guy that he needs to be to, uh, survive in, in the place in his life where he is now. He's just not suited for the high pressure life and he's compassionate and creative and overall he's just average and he is content with that or he can be content with that. But, his career and his wife and everything in his life is not going to let him be. And it's just the whole episode is about a man who's been pushed into a life that is destroying him. And I think that that's a really poignant and strong and, um, special character to draw in an, in an episode, um, of the twilight zone. I thought that it was handled like it was, handled extremely well and highly effective. And I think that it was really remarkable what they did with this episode. So as for trivia for this episode, um, there was a 2000 TV movie called for all time, uh, with Mark Harmon that was based on this episode. Willoughby, Ohio is the only town that has the name, uh, of Willoughby in all of the United States. And in fact, they have a yearly community event involving trains in honor of a stop at Willoughby. Uh, and that, 
that community event is known as Last Stop Willoughby. Also, there's a character in Richard Richard Link's wow Richard Linklater's uh, movie Everybody Wants Some, which I haven't seen yet, but um, it looked pretty cool. Um, the character in the movie is called Willoughby, and it's uh, in the movie. He's a Twilight Zone fanatic and owns almost every episode on VHS. Finally, for trivia, the original draft of the story was actually considered for the pilot episode of the series, but it was eventually rejected, and then it was uh, rewritten uh, later and uh, was used for uh, an end of an episode toward the end of season one. So to kind of wrap wrap up my review, um, in closing. I want to say that uh, <laughs> uh, listener Greg uh, was totally right. This definitely broke me out of my um, kind of slump of mediocrity, or I don't even—I don't know if I would really say mediocrity. Just I, I wasn't really feeling the last couple episodes of the show. Um, so this this really bounced bounced ba- bounced me back, and uh, I feel like this is just a really special episode, and it's it's a really strong episode, and it has um, a pretty remarkable. Um, character arc for a very likable and um, really tragic character in Gart Williams. And it's played really well by James Daly. And I really appreciate this episode and I can see why it's uh, why it was Serling's favorite from season uh, one. Okay. Now that I'm done with my review, uh, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 176 of the obsessive viewer. Uh, which which is a movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. Like, I'm a Pixar fanboy. I, I love Pixar. Finding Nemo is one of my favorite Pixar movies. It's it's fantastic. Um, it's fantastic. Um, it's... Uh, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've got an ocean of puns here. <laughs> of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can find the episode that you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV176. All right. So as I like to do on this podcast, I'm going to kind of wind things down with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. And this week uh, for the bonus review, I'm going to be reviewing, uh, giving my brief thoughts at least, on Patterns, which was an episode of Craft Television Theater that uh, was performed um, in January of 1955 and then was actually such a big hit that a month later it was performed again for craft theater, uh, for craft television at least. And, uh, a year after that, uh, a film was released. And once again, I talked about this when I did a review of, um, of, of Requiem for a Heavyweight, I believe, but man, I'm just mesmerized by, like classic live theater like that uh, live television theater and it's just i mean it's just remarkable just what they can what they what they can accomplish um and again i feel like that's missing from television today i kind of wish that there was more like dramatic live television performed um i know that er did that at one point in its run way back in the day but um it's just it's something that i wish would happen more cuz it's it's really it's really majestic when it's when it's performed well. So anyway, Patterns was a breakout hit. It was uh it kind of brought Rod Serling 
into the uh, inner circle of, of Hollywood writers and, and writing and, and uh, television and film projects kind of lined up at the door. I think there was a quote where Serling said that um, I be- I'm going to butcher this. I don't have it in front of me, but there was a, there was a quote where Serling said that <laughs> the night that patterns premiered, the phone started ringing and it never stopped. Um, and that's, and that's amazing. And this, this, I mean, the episode holds up and by the way, you can find the entire episode, um, on YouTube. Um, so I'll have a link in the show notes for you to check it out and I'm not going to spoil it in this review, but the, the story is about Staples, uh, is about a character named Staples and a character named Sloan and they're both executives in, in a business. So Staples is brought in and it's kind of this, kind of this dynamic, uh, shift between the two characters. Like there's, there's some, there's some things going on that seems that, that makes their dynamic really compelling. And at the center of it or, or uh, at the head of everything is this character, um, uh, Ramsey, who's played by Everett Sloan, who was in, uh, the fever. Um, and he does such a great job. He plays this really amazing conniving, just Dis, like despicable character who has no empathy, much much like Mister Misrael in um, a stop at Willoughby. He's this character that is just so remorseless, and it's it's really amazing. And you've got that um, juxtaposed with uh, Staples, who's this kind of young. Uh, he's he's this young executive who is who's who's green but it has compassion and he's conflicted throughout the episode because, or throughout the story, because there are some things that he is, that he is, uh, morally, there are things that he's, uh, he, that he is, uh, asked to do that is morally que- uh, questionable. And there are certain things that he learns about his placement in the company that, when he learns about this, when he learns the truth about why he's there, you can feel just how much it hurts him. And I think that that's really remarkable. And he has this kind of power struggle between his compassion and his ambition that, uh, again, is really compelling. And it makes for a really interesting morality tale in this episode. And it kind of comes across as, or kind of comes down to the fact that compassion doesn't belong in business. And it all comes to a head after some some events transpire, <laughs> Um, and there's, there's a, there's a sequence where the main character confronts the, confronts Everett Sloan's character. And it's just, it's such a, it's such an incredible scene and it's a great monologue. It's kind of like has, has some shades of like some Frank Capra-esque stuff where he's, he's doing this impassioned monologue about, about how, uh, basically how just despicable this businesses. And it was really well done. I really liked it. And, um, Everett Sloan played a really great remorseless, hard and severe and compassionless, um, business executive. He was a great foil for the, for the character of Staples. And he was a great villain in the, in the uh, story. I won't go into much more detail about it. Um, 
because I, I recommend checking it out and it's so easy to find. It's, it's on YouTube and everything. So, um, I recommend checking it out. It's, it's really, it's really interesting. It's really well acted and, uh, the writing is impeccable and it's, and you can really tell why, uh, Serling really broke through after this, um, after this, uh, aired and it made me really excited to see, uh, to see the film version of it. Um, I believe the film is on Amazon prime available to stream on Amazon prime. And I know that at the end of the season of anthology and at the end of the season of twilight zone, I'm going to review Requiem for heavyweight, the film version of it. I may also review patterns. Um, Maybe maybe in a few weeks, but that's up in the air. But anyway, um, my last thought on this is kind of totally anecdotal, really. And um, it's it's that when you watch these things on YouTube and you watch their like they're taped off of a of a telecast of it, like a live broadcast, and then converted to to digital, whatever. Um, it's funny because they're from the actual broadcast, so they have cuts to commercials um that are that are edited out and everything um or like the the cuts to commercials are ads for um stuff this this particular one had ads for oh i can't remember what it was now wow it wasn't must not have been that good um it wasn't peanut butter it was like some kind of spread i don't know but it was uh they did it a few times um anyway so at the end of at the end of it there's a um there's kind of a there's kind of a an ad or a plea or a, uh, an announcement that um, for the for the 1955 March of Dimes uh, to fight polio and I thought that that was really interesting um, an interesting piece of uh, history to see in in the episode. Okay, so now that I kind of stumbled through all that, um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing from you and hearing your thoughts on um, a stop at Willoughby and everything and uh, patterns and, and all that stuff. And next week on the podcast, I am going to be uh, reviewing The Chaser which is episode 31 of the Twilight Zone. And I'm really excited for the bonus review for this because the bonus review is going to be an episode of Tales from the Crypt uh, from season three called Love to Death, um, which is based on the Tales from the Crypt comic book that used the source story for the chaser as its... As its uh, as its uh, inspiration or, or as an adaptation from the same, from the same short story. So I'm really excited because I've, I've, I've really enjoyed doing the anthology podcast and everything. And I've, I've always like kind of thought like, oh, I wonder what would have happened if I would have done instead of twilight zone. What if I would have done tales from the crypt and done an done an anthology horror podcast instead of anthology. So, um, or at least instead of science fiction anthology. And so I'm really excited to see, um, to, to see what I find in next week's episode. And of course, one final thing, I am still going strong with my bonus reviews of Black Mirror, which if you haven't watched Black Mirror yet, I highly recommend checking it out. It's really incredible. And this week's bonus review is going to be kind of nice. This bonus episode is going to be nice because I'm actually going to release it on Tuesday, which is election day which the episode that I'm going to be reviewing, uh, the Waldo moment, uh, is really, 
has some pretty interesting parallels to the current political climate and uh it's about politics in general so it's i really like when those when the when that kind of lines up um when real life lines up with the scheduling of the podcast and one final thing about black mirror is that i'm really digging the new season and uh um i'm looking forward to reviewing each episode and the episode san junipero um episode four that that episode kind of hit me really hard but um there's some interesting interesting comparisons that can be made um between a stop at willoughby and san junipero i don't know if they're i don't i don't think it's intentional or anything but um if you liked a stop at willoughby i recommend checking out at least just san junipero because i thought it was a really uh great episode so more on that in the coming weeks and having said all that thank you again for listening and i'll see you next time Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at ObsessiveViewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessive viewer and check out ObsessiveBookNerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.